Uh, if you remember, we started out last week talking about how the uh, Congressional Budget Office is predict predicting a uh, federal deficit of a staggering $1 trillion for this uh, 2020 fiscal year and, and about the impact that that's going to have uh, on our overall national debt. But, you know, the truth is that that figure is only part of the problem because not only are we carrying a huge national debt, but individual states are carrying around big unfunded mandates, uh, ma many of which are, are even now beyond uh, the tipping point of ever being correct. In fact, I just read that the 50-state total recently hit $75 billion. That's the state's debt, not just the national debt, uh, which has led some states, at least hypothetically, to consider the idea of bankruptcy to remedy those huge deficits. A and I tell you that, of course, not to give you uh, more bad news or even a mini lesson on the economy, but because like last week, there's a deficit of a different kind that I really want to look at with you. Uh, and one that's going to be the theme over our next couple of messages, and that is the deficit facing the 21st century American church. Uh, the deficit of a true biblical worldview. Uh, a deficit that's, that's led directly to the spiritual bankruptcy inside the church, led to a forfeiture of respect for the church's moral authority to speak to the issues of the day, uh, and ultimately thereby a loss of ability to guide men and women in the search for any real purpose to life or any actual meaning in death, uh, which is why I believe it's important, so important, to, to recapture a back-to-basics understanding of our faith uh, and to reconnect with the classical historic Christian worldview of our ancestors, and we're going to uh, use the next psalm in our series, Psalm 105, to continue that, because just like the poetic language of Psalm 104 last week circled our attention back to God's creation of this universe and to the fundamentals of our origin and nature, Psalm 105 today directs us to some of the earliest examples of God calling men and women out of the banality of their everyday existence and into a blessedness of a personal relationship with him and a life of purpose and meaning that's just as relevant for us today as it was in the lives of the patriarchs and the prophets to which it happened. And so I hope you've been following along with us and you'll join me in Psalm 105. And I heard somebody, is everybody okay back there? I thought I heard is somebody not feeling well or coughing. If, if you have trouble, if you want to flag down one of the ushers, we can help you find a spot. Cause the, uh, and I, I say this only not to be rude to anyone, but the main speakers for the other buildings are, are right in that back corner. So you, you may be drowning out the audio to the other areas. Uh, but who, whoever it is, please don't get angry at me. I just say that for everybody's convenience. Uh, but please join me in Psalm 105 which says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. 
He remembers his covenant forever, the words that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When there are few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. And then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. And they performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there were swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and scattered their trees in their country. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number. They devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn of their land, the first fruits of all their strength. And then he brought out Israel with silver and gold. And there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. And so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for your word, your word of truth that speaks to our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. And Father, through him, I ask you today to take what we have read and heard and write it on our hearts today, Lord, for our good and for your glory through Christ our Lord. Amen. So uh, I uh, read about a pastor who was making a trip into town one evening. He was walking past some of, the, some of the finer homes on its main street. When he happened to bump into one of his parishioners they hadn't seen in a little while. Uh, this man was standing out in front of one of those fine homes, and uh, he was holding kind of an official-looking envelope tucked under his arm that was marked bankruptcy court on the back. Uh, they greeted each other. The, the pastor could see that the man was uh, having kind of a depressed air about him and 
forlorn look on his face. And actually, he seemed almost on the verge of tears. Uh, and so he, he asked, what was the matter? And the fellow pulled himself together and he said, Pastor, uh, let me tell you, the last time that I was in church, uh, you preached on trusting God's word. So when I got home that afternoon, uh, I opened the Bible and at random I dropped my finger on a word. And the word said oil. So I invested in oil, and boy, did that oil well gush. The man wiped away a tear, and he said, Then a month later, I, I, I opened the Bible, I dropped my finger on another word, and that word said gold, and so I invested in gold, and those gold mines really produced. They made me richer than a Rockefeller. Well, by now, the pastor was, was really confused, and he said, Now, son, you, you know better. Don't do that anymore. That's not how this works. Uh, but, but say, if you've been so successful, what's, what's with all the, the tears and, and the bankruptcy notice? And the, and the man said, well, pastor, that system had all worked so well before that I decided to try it just one more time. Uh, and the pastor said, well, well, what word did you land on now? And the man said, pastor, this time it was two words, chapter 11. I needed a little drum roll after that one. <laughs> but you know, we can laugh at that, but really the unfunny truth is that's pretty much how way too many people treat the Bible and treat the truth of God's Word. But you know, if we, if we really want to get back to basics, back to the bedrock foundation of everything we believe, then we've got to recommit ourselves individually and as a people to investing our time and our attention in the study of God's Word. Because in, in the words of uh, Professor Kevin DeYoung of Reformed Theological Seminary, he says, God's word says what is true. God's word says what is good. God's word demands what is right. And to those three, I would just simply add, and God's word provides a basis for meaning in this volatile world. And, and what I want to really dial into in this message is that idea of meaning from the meaning of life and creation all the way down to what it means to be a human being existing within it. Because our concept of meaning provides another one of those vital pillars that support our Christian worldview that we started talking about last week. And if you remember, as we defined it last week, uh, in its most basic form, a worldview is simply a lens through which you ultimately view reality. It's a set of, uh, of assumptions or assertions that you've made through which you consider every choice and every decision that comes up as we attempt to answer for ourselves the big questions of life. And if you remember, those questions are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, right? Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And kiddos, make sure you're taking notes because remember, I'm going to ask you questions later, right? So origin, where, where did I come from? Right? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, how do I really know what's right and wrong? And destiny, what happens to me after I die? And the conclusions, remember, we said that you come to when you posit your answers to those four questions, they've all got to hang together. You can't be right on one and wrong on the other three. And you can't even be right on three and wrong on one because without a proper view of each of those elements, your individual outlook on life is, is just a house of cards ready to be blown away by the next crisis that comes along. 
And that actually takes me right back into the text of Psalm 105 and its poetic retelling of the lives of the patriarchs and more importantly, the meaning and the purpose that God infused into them. You know, because just like we saw last week that you can't really understand and really know God until you rightly understand the origin of our creation, you can't understand your place in this world until you grasp God's purpose for putting you into it. Uh, and really, that's Psalm 105 in a nutshell, guys, because uh, this is where we hear about the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and Moses and Aaron and how God used their everyday uh, and, and honestly, sometimes very painful circumstances to bless not only them, but the people of Israel as a whole and you and me sitting here today because their stories provide a framework to recognize the difference between a life of hope and meaning and a life of depression and despair. It really has to do with how you measure those experiences. And whether you focus on the trials and tribulations or on the ways in which God uses those things to bless you and to draw you closer to him as he works out his purpose in this world. And honestly, there, when I was thinking about this week, there's so many good avenues we could take with this psalm uh, we could be here all day. Uh, or we even could have divided this up into about six different messages. And so what I'm going to do instead is I just want to dial in a little tighter and look at just one that our psalm mentions. And that's the example given in the life of Joseph from the story that the Bible gives us in Genesis chapter 37. And obviously we, we don't have time to read it all, so you can have that for homework later. Uh, but, but I'm sure you guys all know the story. If you remember, he was the... 11th son of the patriarch Jacob, uh, his first son through his favorite wife, Rachel. And because of that, and because Joseph was born in Jacob's old age, Jacob kind of displayed a little extra affection for Joseph, which in turn prompted feelings of jealousy among his brothers and set up years of family dysfunction until by the time poor Joseph was 17 years old, Genesis 37, 4 says that all of his brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Hated him so much, in fact, that they actually tossed Joseph into a well and sold him to a passing caravan of traders who resold him as a slave to a man named Potiphar. Where, against all odds, God gave him success so that he becomes a trusted manager of the household. But just at the peak of his success, Potiphar's wife slanders him, accusing him of rape, and he's thrown into prison. But again, God gives Joseph favor, and he gives him success uh, with the keeper of the prison who appoints Joseph as his, his right-hand man and, and the wardener of the prisoners. Now, shortly after he got that position, well, Pharaoh's royal cupbearer and his court baker were imprisoned, and Joseph successfully interpreted some dreams they had, interpreted them correctly that the cupbearer gets acquitted and would be released, but the baker, well, he was going to get hanged. It's now been 13 years since the 17-year-old Joseph was sold into slavery. Uh, and he finds himself at this point in life, every time it looks like uh, God's hand of blessing was on him, suddenly things just went from bad to worse. Uh, and so instead of getting better, now he finds himself in prison, and he's 30 years old. Two years later, Pharaoh himself has a dream, a nightmare, really, 
uh, which none of his advisors were able to explain. But suddenly, remembering Joseph from his prison days, the cupbearer suggests that he be summoned. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream as being a divine prediction for seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Uh, and he advised Pharaoh to prepare by storing grain during those first seven years. Uh, if you remember, impressed by Joseph's wisdom, Pharaoh appointed him his viceroy, uh, made him second only to the king and tasked him with readying the nation for those years of famine. Uh, years that are ultimately going to affect not only the land of Egypt, but spread out over the whole region, including where Joseph's brothers were living. Uh, years so bad, the Bible tells us that they'll threaten the very existence of Jacob's whole family. But watch this. But that will also, through God's providence, uh, send those brothers right to Joseph's doorstep, where ultimately God would provide for his people uh, by means of this brother that they hated. This, this one that they had labeled dreamer and arrogant brat and foolish boy, but who behind the scenes God had taken from obscurity and made a type of savior to his father and brothers, uh, and ultimately all the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, all of God's chosen people who were rescued from starvation. But keep in mind, so I tell you that whole long story so you can think about this, it's been 22 years, and only now in the story can Joseph see what in the world all of that loss and that slander and that loneliness and that affliction and that injustice and that seemingly disconnected and meaningless events were all about. Now that's, that's a long time for God to keep his servant in the dark about what he's doing in his life, isn't it? That's a long time. And, and the reason that those things are relevant to us is because no doubt there are folks here that are somewhere on that same pilgrimage today. You may be hated by family members. You maybe find yourself in a, a pit of depression uh, or enslaved to debt or, or falsely accused or maybe, maybe even just find yourself lonely and forgotten like a prisoner in a cell and you start to think to yourself, what's the point? Why am I here? Why, why do I have to go through all of this stuff? But the good news is there's an answer. There's an answer from one of the most famous verses in Joseph's story and perhaps one of the most important verses in the Bible from Genesis chapter 50, that when you see it in relation to your life and mine and the lengths to which our loving Heavenly Father has gone to redeem us, that it's going to provide a meaning and a context for you that, I, that maybe you haven't even noticed before. Uh, it comes very late in the story of Joseph after his father's death, where he's meeting with his brothers who... If you remember the story, by this time we're afraid that Joseph was going to feel free to take his revenge on them since, since dad had passed. But who says to his brothers instead in Genesis chapter 50, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And, and don't mishear this, like Joseph didn't say, you meant evil against me, but God somehow figured out how to use it for good. No, he says, you meant it. You, you meant what you did for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that same, that same word for meant is used in both cases in the Hebrew. He's saying, you meant it. You, you intended, you planned it, selling me into slavery to the Midianites, which was evil on your part. 
what God meant it. God intended, he planned it. He planned my slavery for our mutual good. Because you see, church, God isn't surprised by our circumstances. And then just, you know, scratches his head and tries to figure out how to use it for good. He's, he's never sitting in heaven, I promise you, saying, boy, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> right? No. He, he's in charge of everything in the story of Joseph from the beginning. He planned it. He, he predicted it in a dream. He superintended all of the elements for 22 years, and then he pulls it all together in the rescue of his people through Joseph's pain. Uh, and, and lest you think that's just my interpretation or just my opinion, remember what we read in Psalm 105. It says in verse 16, when he, meaning God, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, what happened? He had sent a man. He had sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in collars of iron until what he said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. You see, one uh, commentator said on this, it's unmistakable what this inspired author wants us to see, that God is sovereign over dreams and human sinful action and prosperous years and destructive famines and slanderous enemies and forgetful cupbearers. Nothing is happening in the story randomly. Every element has meaning. And I know, honestly, there, there are people, lots of people who reject the idea of God's sovereignty uh, like that. People, people who don't want to believe that God governs the actions of natural disasters and Chinese viruses and famines and, and actions of sinful family members like Joseph's brother. But, but then that also means they have to reject God's sovereignty over the sinful acts of men that brought about a greater salvation than just from starvation. And that is the work of regeneration and redemption in Jesus Christ. A work pre-planned by God and willingly carried out by sinful men. Uh, remember, it's just like the Apostle Peter pointed out in Acts chapter 2 uh, in his inaugural sermon. Remember, he said, people of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles and wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and he prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. But God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. So let everyone know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. And so you see, just like the physical salvation of God's people that happened through the injustice done to Joseph... The gospel of our salvation was accomplished through the evil of sinful men as they unjustly killed the Son of God on the cross. And this is where I hope you, you begin to get a sense of the meaning, meaning from the Word of God that stretches from the life of Joseph to the death of Jesus, from all of Scripture, really. And it's this, that God reigns in sovereign love over His people in every circumstance. So in the words of Romans 8.28, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those that love God and who are called according to his purpose for them. Right? 
which really is the point of Psalm 105 and of the lives of the patriarchs it recounts because to ask questions about life's purpose is to raise the question of meaning and brothers and sisters the clear testimony of scripture is that meaning is not found in the things that this world considers valuable it's not found in money or possessions or status or, or power or comfort and security because none of those things have any value after we die right so you see if atheism is true and we're just just all freak cosmic accidents if if you and I are just a random uh, collocation of atoms thrown together by time plus matter plus chance, then we're, we're nothing going nowhere. But praise God, our creation in His image as we saw last week and our redemption through His Son in spite of human evil, that human evil that Psalm 105 points to, those meanings and purposes are forever. Meaning also that meaning and purpose of our existence goes beyond our self-interest and onto the business of glorifying God. Or just like the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. You Reformed folks, help me out there. What's the chief end of man? Anybody? Westminster Shorter Catechism? Yeah, to love God and enjoy Him forever. That's the chief purpose. That's the chief end. That's the foremost meaning of man is to love God and glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And the only way to do that is to repent and submit to the gospel and then orient our lives towards the one whom the Bible describes as God's perfect image, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one willing to be trampled on and rejected and crushed for us and for our sins so that our broken reflection might be remade and restored and reborn through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and his ascension into glory where in the words of Psalm 105, he calls out to us today, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. And why? It's because he's the Lord, our God. His judgments are on all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The words that he commanded for a thousand generations and through that covenant, through that combination of his perfect law and his precious love, he gives meaning and purpose to each of us according to his perfect will uh, for our natural lives here on earth and for all of eternity in the world to come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for your creation of us and your image. We thank you, Lord, for your redemption and remaking of that image when we willingly broke it. Uh, and we thank you, Father, for being willing to do that through your precious Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.